Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Welcome to Chicago Capital. Thank you so much for joining. No worries. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So this is a special interview because typically we interview uh, venture capitalists and air those episodes on Wednesdays. And we also interview founders in the Chicago area and we air those episodes on Fridays. But <laughs> you happen to check both of the boxes, sir. So with that being said, uh, just curious, how do you introduce yourself these days? Do you lead with co-founder and CEO of DraftBit or GP at Long Jump? How do you, uh, how do you cram all that into one sentence at, at the cocktail parties? <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to a lot of cocktail parties these days, but, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm a founder first, for sure. Um, that's how I think of myself personally. And I think um, I'm an angel investor and obviously GP at Long Jump, but to me, uh, those things are secondary to the time that I spend building the companies and specifically DraftBit right now. But so I'd love to hear a little bit of your background, how you came to start DraftBit and sort of your entrepreneurial and I guess as well investing journey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've been a founder for too long, too many years. I started my first business when I was an undergraduate at IU down in Bloomington, Indiana, um, which is where I went to undergraduate. Um, and uh, Go Hoosiers. Yeah, did that for after that, I moved to Indianapolis, which is where I grew up and started my first software startup. Um, after selling my, uh, the, the, the business I was running while I was an undergraduate was not a software technology, it was more of an IT services company. And then uh, started my first software startup and uh, sort of a lot of hit or miss, like didn't really know what I was doing, mixed bag, and did that for a while, we ended up selling the business kind of sideways. And then I moved to Chicago, went to business school um, at University of Chicago. And uh, it was kind of that, kind of during that two-year period, that was 2009 to 2011, uh, so it's been a couple years. Um, that's when I kind of unlocked, you know, my network and was able to kind of access the entrepreneurial scene here in Chicago and got to meet uh, my friend Sam Yegan and Troy Hanikoff, um, who were instrumental in kind of my career. After business school, I went to work for Sam. He had just sold OkCupid to Match.com, and so I moved out to San Francisco and ran this thing called OkCupid Labs for about five years, moved back to Chicago, came back to the organization, how I got to know Sam and Troy, which was Accelerate Labs. It had become Techstars Chicago. So came back and ran Techstars Chicago with Troy for two years and then left to start um, another business. And uh, that business was originally called Orchard and is now pivoted and is called DraftBit. And uh, yeah, that's kind of my journey. Um, and, and, you know, along the way, I started investing maybe five, six years ago as an angel investor, writing very small checks at the beginning and then, you know, like $5,000 checks um, and then getting larger over time. And I think more recently, obviously starting Long Jump, like long, the idea for Long Jump actually started while I was still at Techstars. It just took a while for us to kind of turn it into a reality. So curious about, did you ever consider just going into VC full-time from Techstars or have you just always wanted to be an entrepreneur first and foremost, and it's just sort of a part of your DNA? Yeah, actually before, before I came back to Chicago, I considered that a lot. So I uh, was lucky enough to join this program called the Coffin Fellows Program while I was in San Francisco. And Coffin Fellows Program is kind of a training ground for up and coming venture capitalists, if you will. That's probably not the way they would describe it, but you know, I did that for a few years and it was, it was at the cusp where I was trying to decide, like, would I rather be like, uh, you know, part of my job at OkCupid Labs, like I lived in both worlds in that, in that role. My job was to build new businesses internally, but also like as part of that, we kind of made capital allocation decisions, almost like a venture investor. And so I kind of played both roles and was able to kind of figure that out. But I think through the, through the Kauffman Fellows program and sort of, and then afterwards coming back to Chicago, I think one of the things that struck me while I was at Techstars Chicago was how much I missed, like how much I loved the founders that I was working with and how much I was jealous that they were getting to operate at that early stage. And the investment stuff is fun, but it's not as fun. It's not as rewarding for me personally, um, not as fulfilling as, as, as kind of building yourself, building myself. So, and you also, 
you mentioned Techstars, your experience there, um, but you also got your MBA. I, I'm curious about founders today. Um, I think it's fair to say probably in the last 10 years, there's been a proliferation of more accelerators around the country. Um, you know, Techstars is obviously one of the big ones. Uh, YC. I'm just curious from your perspective, if I'm an entrepreneur, I want to start a business. Do you think going to business school, do you think going through one of these accelerators is a necessary step or is it something that's sort of individual for everybody. Um, kind of curious just about the dynamic between those two. I definitely don't think either is a requirement or necessary to be successful. I think for each different person, you know, we all have different backgrounds and different skill sets and different networks and different sort of strengths and weaknesses, if you will. And I think either of those, an MBA or an accelerator or both, can be enormously valuable, but I definitely don't think it's a requirement to be successful. And I have to ask because, you know, when people move outside of Chicago for a stretch and then they always come back and I've, we've talked to a lot of people who've actually gone to the Valley and decided to come back. Did you ever think about staying out in the Valley and continuing your career in entrepreneurship and investing out there? Uh, and what brought you back? Yeah. I mean, I, I love San Francisco. I love, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about, should we live my wife and I, Alexis, we, we spent a lot of time thinking like, where should we live in the world? Should it be Chicago? Should it be Texas, which is where a lot of the match world was and where my wife um, kind of grew up and still works a lot with? Should it be, which obviously now is hot with Austin and other things. Um, should it be LA? Should it be San Francisco? You know, ultimately, the decision for us was actually sort of like one of the ones that you hear a lot from people. We came back, we're, I'm from the Midwest and we came back to the Midwest because we're having kids and we wanted like our kids to see our grandparents and things like that. Like that's that's really like, I hate to say it, but like that was a big part of uh, how we drove our decision making, and the fact that we we love Chicago, we love living in Chicago. I think, I think for me, for my career wise, I'm I'm the kind of person, and this is again, like, you have to make your individual choices. But for me, I'd rather be in a smaller community where I know everyone than a bigger community. Like San Francisco is amazing, but I was never like I was never on track to be like you have to be an Elon Musk or a Peter Thiel to be like anybody in that ecosystem. You know, you have to have a trillion dollar company and, you know, and I just, I was like, you know, the probability of that happening feels so small. And so I felt like I could have a bigger impact being part of the Chicago ecosystem than I could ever in the San Francisco ecosystem. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's echoed a lot. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's always an interesting conversation, the return to Chicago. A lot of people move back for family reasons, but I think some people do actually have strategic reasons as well, which, um, you know, we'll, we'll dive in a little bit more in Chicago uh, later on in the show, but I'd love to sort of dive in a bit more on DraftBit sure. um, and understand the origin of that company and uh, what you all are working on. Yeah, so, so the high level behind DraftBit is we're trying to make it possible for you to build a mobile application in the cloud, but without the trade-offs that you might normally have to make choosing between developers and no developers. There, there exists this world, the traditional engineering that we all know about, like you hire a team of engineers and product managers and designers and you build product. And that's great and it works really well, um, but it's also very expensive. And it turns out you build organizations where everyone else in the organization is sort of queuing up work product work for those for those people to do and everyone else is kind of blocked and can't do anything. Then the other side, we have the newer, new in some ways and also old in many other ways, but like these newer tools that are no code tools. And a lot of those tools sort of wave their hands and say, hey, you're never gonna need engineers again. You're never gonna need to do traditional engineering. Um, and there's a lot of advantages that come with those no code tools, but kind of we feel like either of those is the wrong approach. Like the reality is the reality of future of software development is that you're still gonna have software engineers, you're still gonna have specialists, right? But you also wanna unlock all the people that are non-specialists to be able to make progress where they can. That's the future that we see with DraftBit is really a world where you have engineers and non-engineers working together. So not choosing between one or the other, but actually living in that messy middle area, enabling developers and non-developers to work together, building products. And like our belief is that uh, there are like, there are a billion people now in the world that have grown up using software, but only about 80 million of them have software engineering capabilities, like our, our software developers or software engineers. So it means there's like over 900 million people in the world that use software, but can't create it. That seems kind of insane. Like what if I told you, like, you know, we got this cool thing called a hammer, but only, you know, 8% of the population can use a hammer. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? And like software is perhaps the most valuable tool we've invented, so you know, in the last hundred years. And like everyone should be able to use it, and that's how we see it. But we also believe in building real products, 
like real things, not prototypes, not MVPs. Like we believe in building real products and real products have complexity. They have algorithmic, they have security concerns, they have all these things. So you're gonna need engineers. And so we sort of, we think about like chipping away at this and building a product that enables, like I said, both engineers and non-engineers to work together. I know it's a lot, does that make sense? No, yeah, definitely. And I, I hate to disappoint you from the out front. I am uh, I can't really use or build software and I can't really work a hammer. So I'm your guy. <laughs> I'm probably the problem. I'm what needs to change. So yeah. uh, this speaks directly to me. Um, that's like, that's like the strategic is, vision. The more tactical vision yep. reality is that like we are a power user tool for building mobile applications. And so our users and our customers are people that are using tools like Zapier and Webflow and things like that. And they're creating mobile applications with Dropbox. So is it B2B then? Are you guys selling into developer teams of startups or enterprises, or is this more of a consumer play, people looking it's to not, build we, apps we, from scratch? There are people in our category that we love and people building in the no-code and low-code space that are for the more consumer kind of element. We are definitely more B2B. We are more like teams are using DraftBit and teams of kind of semi-technical and technical professionals. We don't like if you if you're a a pizza restaurant owner and you want to build a mobile app and you've never built a mobile app before, like DraftBit's not where you start. We are for like experts to go faster. That makes sense. Got it. Yeah, that makes total sense. And is it a, you know, software subscription model? Basically people pay per month per user. Is that kind of the pricing model? Yep. 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 It's SaaS. Um, and yeah, you hit it right. Exactly. It's per user per month. And I'm so zooming out the low code, no code movement is something that, you know, I can't speak to a few years ago, but it definitely feels like today uh, it's really kind of exploded. And even on the show, a lot of the founders that I've talked to, you know, they've built their their apps, their websites on Bubble. They've used all these tools. I built Square, you know, my website on Squarespace. When you started DraftBit, was the low code, no code movement even, was there even a term for it at the time? Or or has it sort of now uh, reached this, this, you know, really big movement that is very noticeable? Yeah, it's it's weird. Um it's certainly become like we weren't we didn't when we started DraftBit, we weren't we weren't there wasn't this like growing massive trend of tools and investment into tool into things like DraftBit. Um, we were just trying to build a tool that we would have used to build Orchard. Like that's how we got started. We were building this mobile app called Orchard, and we realized that wasn't gonna work out for a bunch of reasons. But what we were learning is that hey, we were really good at building apps, and people were asking us, Can you build a tool to help us build apps? So that's what we actually started doing. Along the way, we realized and there have been the world of the the world of sort of low code has been around for a while in the enterprise company, big companies like Appian, Mendix, OutSystems, those guys um, have been in that space for a while. And, and even more, if you roll back even more, like tools like Dreamweaver 10, 15 years ago, building HTML, you know, and by the way, there's a number of them, right? There's like, they go back as far as computing has gone back. There have been visual builders, but I think it's more recently that the difference between the tools existing is the population. And that's what I hit on before, which is people now are ready to build software. The average person has grown up using software, uses software in many different ways. And it's not like software is this magical item that exists anymore. It's like, it's like people understand client and server. They understand databases. They understand some of these things. They're not all software engineers at that level of complexity, but they understand a lot of the basics, which unlock the ability. And I think that's what's different now versus 10 years ago or 20 years ago. At the outset, were you ever worried about, and, and maybe this is just me sort of coming to this subject and the low code, no code movement uh, somewhat recently, but were you ever worried about pitching investors potentially if you're trying to take on money and the pushback of, oh, this kind of sounds like a services business almost. Like, are you really going to be in the weeds a lot helping these people? Like how much how much time are you going to be dedicating to each account? Was that ever a sort of roadblock or conversation you had to have? Um, I mean, our approach has been to productize almost everything we do. Um, we did start, one of the ways we used, one of the ways we dog fooded our, our very earliest version of products, we ran a studio on the side of DraftBit. But it wasn't for the revenue, it was for the learning. It was for the ability of like, hey, how far can our product go? We need something to regularly be using and kind of breaking our product. We stopped doing that uh, a while back. But no, that actually the services component, our pitch was always around productizing this and enabling teams to do it themselves. Um, the services part isn't the, isn't the part that blocks most investors. Um, and I think also most investors on the enterprise side are comfortable with some level of services because everybody knows that like, if someone's going to pay you $100,000 or a million dollars a year, like they're going to need some onboarding and some training and some help. And that's okay. Like a little bit of services is okay. As long as it's not 
you know, 90% of what you're doing. So it's not that services part has never really been an issue for us. And frankly, we're not a very services focused company. We are a product focused company, but yeah. Did COVID present any kind of boom or any kind of um, acceleration of business? I'm curious, just I've read headlines about COVID as representing a boom to, you know, no code, low code, the movement, but I'm curious for you on the ground, did you see any real acceleration of of the low code, no code movement over the past year and a half? I think because we're more B2B, uh, we had like a mixed bag effect is the best way to, to call it. We definitely had more people testing testing us out, kicking the tires. But I think a lot of the true growth during COVID came from the consumer segment way down. You know, people who are like, now I have time, I'm at home, I can try building this crazy app. But they don't typically start with tools like DraftBit. Like we're, we're like, you know, it's a little bit like if you were starting to learn video editing, like you wouldn't drop into the, you would start with like the thing that the movie maker on your laptop, you wouldn't drop into like Adobe Premiere or whatever the, I don't even know if that's the right tool, but like, you know, we are the deep end. And so you don't start in the deep end, you start in the shallow end. I think on the other side, we did see, like we had enterprise businesses that kind of pulled back. And so we, we saw the down, the upside is we saw more people trying out and testing DraftBit and using it. We did see like some reflection that more, a lot, a lot of our tools get used for innovation group work or internal tool building group. And so when companies are afraid of spending, they sometimes pull back a little bit in that arena. And so for us, it was a mixed bag. I think not an obvious boon and not an obvious problem for us. And we were lucky. We raised our seed round uh, November of 2019. So from a financing perspective, it also kind of didn't affect us or hasn't affected us. So we kind of lucked out in that regard. I know that Webflow has Webflow University. You mentioned jumping into the deep end. Does DraftBit have something similar? Do you have sort of a, a module or some kind of course that people take before they really can can totally use the product to its full you know effectiveness? I think we will. We don't yet. I mean, our friends at Webflow, uh, they have 140 employees. We have like 10. Uh, so we're we're a little bit earlier in the trajectory to them, but they they have unlocked like their product is one that they you know they've refined and they have the product market fit working really well and so their content strategy is really about how do we drive up the number of people at the top of the funnel for us we're actually not really in growth mode we're still in product market fit hunting land so while we care about growth kind of overall we're not um, we're still focused on building the core product not necessarily a world of content around it except for where we we see it as critical to unblocking users and so, yeah, we do have we do have content we create. We create tutorials and we create how tos and we create examples and things like that. But we don't kind of have that level of infrastructure yet, like Webflow does around a curriculum, which I think is super powerful. And I love it that they're doing that. And I hope we will do that maybe in the next year or two. What does you mentioned product market fit? I always kind of love asking this question for you guys. What does what do you think product market fit will look like when you reach it? Or what's sort of your anticipation of what it will look like? Yeah, I mean, the hardest thing to understand about our I, I, about our business is in most startups, um, like 90% of startups, I feel like you build a product, you build like an MVP in a month or six months or whatever it takes you, but you build this MVP. And then what you're doing is you're kind of iterating both on the users and on the product itself, and you're kind of changing things. The difference between this business and that and the, most startups is that our product is the requirements, the table stakes for our product are sort of astronomically higher because our product builds other people's products. We're at least one order of magnitude more complex, at least. And I think actually more likely a couple orders of magnitude. So we've been building for three years now. And I think we're still working on our MVP, which is kind of a ridiculous, crazy thing to say. And it's not because we're not capable. It's because the, the scope and the problem space we're tackling is nuts. Like we're productizing parts of computer science. That's crazy, right? And so um, for us, first and foremost, the, the nature of how we measure uh, product market fit at DraftBit is how much can you build inside of DraftBit? How complex of an app? How, uh, like, you know, you can build simple apps in DraftBit all day long, but we now have users building very, very complex apps. And so the question is, and they run into like very nuanced problems and deep problems. And that's part of like how we measure it is like, A, how far are users getting? But B, what kinds of problems are they running into? And I think there'll be a third stage where we feel like, okay, we've got the product cranking in the right direction. 
Like, and we're, we're, we feel close to that, but not quite there. So maybe another three to six months. But then I think we have to, then we'll be focusing on this whole, that, uh, that thing that normal startups have to focus on, which is like, hey, now we have to go out and figure out to grow, scalably grow this audience, right? And so right now we're focused on the, I think what I typically give entrepreneurs is like, first make your product sticky, then figure out how to grow it. And we're still in that first part of like making it super sticky. We have a lot, we have sticky users, but we don't feel like we've cracked that nut fully. And it's a little nuance, like product market fit across any business is a little bit of like, you know, like, you know, you kind of know it when you see it, but it's hard to predict it exactly. So I know that it sounds to me sort of like once you get to that point where you do achieve the stickiness you're looking for, the amount of work that's gone into this and the amount of problems you say people are continuing to find out and the nuances involved, it seems like that'll almost provide a natural moat to anyone that would try to attempt something similar to this. So the more challenging the up ramp, the means, you know, the, the higher yeah. on a hill you sit, it's going to be harder for anyone to sort of duplicate what you're doing. Is that kind of, is that kind of like, you know, the, 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 the long-term strategy there? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's definitely part of it. I mean, I think like I, I would challenge, forget Drafter for a second. I would challenge someone to go try to rebuild Webflow. Like good luck. It's going to take you a while. Like, you know what I mean? And like, and their team is moving fast. So, so if, if you, if you were trying to create Webflow today, you could get there in probably a year and a half or two years, shorter than it took them, but they're still going to be a year or two ahead of you when you get there. And I think that's the nature of how we think about building this business is that it's the value, the, the, the market opportunity and what we're building is so enormous, but, but the complexity is also quite large. And so for us, it's really, you're right. The mode is in the product and how hard it is to create in other businesses, right? You might defend on the brand or network effects or some of those other things for us. It really is the complexity of the product and the, the space. So looking out to 2021, I know you raised your seed round in November of 2019. What's sort of the growth path for the rest of the year and into 2022 that you see for DraftBit? We're still focused on product. So we every day think about how do we make this product easier to use, more powerful, better for our customers, better for our users. So we care about growth. Like we are growing, but it's not our top line. It's not our North Star. Our North Star is like product engagement and stickiness. And so really, I think this year is still going to be about that. It's crazy. It's the third year doing this business or whatever. I think next year, if, if I'm correct, which is I'm not, I think if you'd asked me a year ago, I probably would say the same thing that I said today. So I'm not always correct in my expectation setting. But I think, you know, I think my gut tells me right now that by next year, we will be focused on growth. And for us, a lot of that will come in two forms. It'll come in enterprise sales and it will come in kind of like really expanding into the startup community. I think those are the two things that will kind of go first. Um, we have a lot of agency customers as well. So maybe there'll be an agency kind of dev shop sales approach there too. We'll see. But right now we just... We have so many people sign up for DraftFit, like bespoke organically. We don't really need to do a ton of growth marketing. For us, it's really about product development that's really kind of tricky. And on top of that, you are a GP at Long Jump. And I'd love to dive a little bit into Long Jump. Um, what was the thesis? What was the origin behind Long Jump Capital? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so while I was at Techstars, just seeing that there were just a number of founders that were struggling at kind of the earliest stages in Chicago. And it, and it wasn't for any other reason that they just didn't have access to personal wealth. Right. And so what, what you see this enough, if you, if you're an angel investor enough, you bump into enough founders or companies that are just trying to get started. And it's pretty easy to see that, especially in the Midwest, right in the Midwest, this has always been true or as long as anyone's been doing startups, like it's just the bar to raise, you know, a dollar of capital or a hundred thousand dollars of capital here. It's always been a little bit higher. You need to have more product, more team, more traction, more network effect, whatever it is, you had to have a little bit more than you did in San Francisco or New York. And that's okay because like it means in some ways that's okay because, because it means that the companies that get farther are more proven and the, the founders have more hustle and some of those things, which actually end better. But, but what we found is that there was this, what, what, I, what I started to realize was there's really kind of ridiculous and unfair survivorship bias that what was happening is that because it took you then the very first step, you know, to put together a team, to put together some sales, some traction, some users, some whatever it was, a prop, early product, you know, you typically just need a little bit of capital, either to quit your job and just build or to pay someone to build for you, whatever it is. And so if you look at the data, you see that the people who are making it to the pre-seed level or the seed level 
had access to personal family wealth. And that, that, um, that also naturally biased towards like white men, which was kind of ridiculous, right? And so like, if you think of me as a good entrepreneur or a bad entrepreneur, either way, it's probably not my whiteness or my maleness that makes me a good entrepreneur, right? Like probably not those things. Also not the fact that I might know rich people, right? Like that, none of those things make me a good entrepreneur. And so that's the fundamental premise of long jump is that, is that there are founders with good ideas, working on good problems who just need help with that very first, like where you would normally call your friend or your uncle or your whatever for that first $50,000. Some, a lot of people, millions of people in the United States don't have access to that. And so long jump can fit that role in a way that not just provides the capital, but also provides the connective tissue that helps those companies actually become great seed stage and series A stage and kind of early stage companies for other investors to kind of really shepherd from there. It sounds almost like in some ways institutionalizing the friends and family round. Um, and that's something I've heard a lot, uh, you know, complaint in Chicago, but nationally as well. Uh, people from underrepresented backgrounds, they just don't have that friends and family connection. Um, and, and I almost think a comment you've made in the past as well is, um, I think you said you wish that people in Chicago were sometimes a little bit more open to serendipity, um, this idea of just natural relationships flowing and, and sort of randomness colliding. And that happens all the time in San Francisco. It happens mm-hmm. uh, like millions of stories of companies who've become unicorns, yep. started at a bar, people bumping into each other and getting 50K like that. Um, so is that kind of how you're thinking of it as well, almost institutionalizing that friends and family round? I do. I mean, we do think of it like that in, in many ways. I think the... The other thing that's that's worth just recognizing is that, you know, our network of, at Long Jump is full of people in the Chicago venture capital community who who see this problem as well. They want more companies. They want more diverse founders. They want more, you know, companies being started. But they also can't change. If you run a hundred million dollar fund, you can't really change your fund to be in writing twenty five, fifty, and a hundred thousand dollar checks. Like, it doesn't really work that way. And so. There's this, I think there's this perception by first-time entrepreneurs that the existing venture capital community like doesn't care about them or ignores them, which, which is structurally true, but not, not to the individuals. And so, so many of our LPs are people that actually really care about making a difference in this arena, but they can't do it through their, with their existing $100 million funds. So they're, they're helping Long Jump do it. And I think that's how we think about it. And, and, and being able to do that I think it's serendipity is an important part of that. Like part of how we think about enabling our network is collecting up people that might bump into someone who's working on an idea. That's why you have more than 180 LPs in long jump. It's because those people bump into the people kind of thinking, noodling on an idea who might be a good fit for us and who are thinking about getting to that next level. And so I guess about the LPs, is it mostly angels, people from around the Chicagoland area, or is there any kind of institutional capital um, coming in from pension funds? Or how is the LP structure set up? I mean, we're a tiny fund. We're still technically fundraising, so I can't reveal the amount of funds that we have. But like we're tiny in the world of venture capital, just put it that way. Um, Our goal is to write 100K checks. And so our LPs are... Uh, we, we do have some fam- we do have some family offices that are very involved in long jump in a really great, very positive way. We don't have pension funds or state you know funds, which a lot of like bigger venture funds rely on, or, or you know academic endowments. We don't have those. The bulk of our LPs are fit into two camps. Fit into one first founders and operators. So at least I think fifty percent or more. I'd have to check the numbers recently, but somewhere around fifty percent of our LPs are people that are either founders themselves or are working at a startup as like a, you know, like they're the head of marketing or the CTO or the whatever it is, those people, because they see the same problem that we see and they want to, they want to solve it. They also want to give their time to help these companies kind of reach the next level. That's the first thing. The second thing is the, the rest of our LPs are people that, like I said before, that bump into this problem later on. Like they, they run a larger fund. So their fund isn't invested in long jump, but they're as individuals there. So we have a number of LPs in long jump who are members of every other, you know, pretty much every other venture fund in Chicago and many outside of Chicago. And that's because they want long jump to be successful too, because it not just benefits our community, but also a little bit selfishly benefits them and their funds. They're going to see more deals, right? And that's what every venture capitalist wants to see is more companies. So how do you balance as a founder and, you know, a GP of long jump? How, what's your time allocation like? I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated by um, you're so actively involved, A, in the Chicago community, and now you've taken on this added responsibility and this added role. 
so how do you balance the two of those? Yeah, it's hard. Uh, <laughs> time management is always the thing, like the most important skill for an entrepreneur is time management, right? Um, you know, all of the partners at Long Jump are full-time on their own startups, yeah. right? They're working at their own startups. So, so we run Long Jump like a side project and we do five to 10 hours a week, um, nights and weekends. We, you know, for anyone that's interviewed with Long Jump, you'll know that like we did interviews at 8 a.m. on Tuesday mornings and we did them on Saturday afternoons and Sunday. Like that's how we do it because during the rest of the time we're running our own company. We don't have time. And and we we all believe like we've all we've all raised capital. We're all venture back founders. And so we have to put our companies kind of first. Right. Long Jump is is a side project. But we also are doing Long Jump because we kind of got tired of waiting around for someone else to fix the problems we were seeing. And so as founders, we were just like, you know, we know how to affect change. That's what you have to fundamentally do as a founder. And so that's what we are doing. And so we're, we're figuring out a way to make long jump successful, you know, nights and weekends. And that's just the best we, the best we can do to balance it. I think over time, hopefully we, we hope to raise enough capital that would allow us to employ some full-time team members on long jump, but right now. And is it us. sector agnostic? So. You guys basically look at anything sort of, but with that mandate of, as you said, you know, bringing more capital to traditionally underrepresented founders is that it, but it's sort of a broad scope or broad brush we yeah we are we are it's easier to sometimes say what we won't invest in than what we will invest in so the the three kind of criteria the three like check the box criteria obviously there's a lot of other like selection process but but you have to be within you have to be kind of based or have a founder that's in and or near chicago uh, the second is you have to be you have to be able to make big progress with $100,000. So that's where some industries and categories, like if you're doing a pharmaceutical business or something like, you know, a diagnostic, like $100,000, probably not going to do it for you. If you're doing some energy or material sciences, like 100K is not going to do anything for you. So but but most companies, most startups, software, hardware, even even most hardware, a lot of, you can make a lot of progress for $100,000. And the third the third thing we just is that you have to be at that right. You have to be at that right stage or in that right category of either working either have an underrepresented founder on your team or be working on kind of an overlooked business and what i mean by that is like pretty hard to say in chicago that if you are two white men working on a logistics startup that you probably don't fit into long jumps criteria because like you're not underrepresented and your business is definitely not overlooked. Like there's many logistics startups and many logistics angel investors. But on the other hand, we will invest in one or the either or both of those two things where, where if, you know, we're looking at a number of businesses right now where there are two white men, but they're building a business that is typically would be very hard to raise capital for in Chicago. And that to me is the same thing because we're not, while we, while we care a lot about investing in underrepresented founders, like our mandate is to find the best founders working on ideas that might not otherwise get funded. Like we don't have quotas and we're not like a, we're not a diversity fund in the sense of like, we have a certain number of black founders we want to fund and a certain number, like that's not how we think about it. We think about unearthing the best founders who might be overlooked by the existing market conditions, if that makes sense. Yeah, it kind of sounds similar almost in some sense to, uh, we had Ezra Galson from Starting Line on the show uh, two weeks ago and you know, their mantra is uh, consumer investments for the 99% of America, right? Um, it it kind of sounds as almost a similar in a similar vein of the type of underrepresented, un, you know, unearthed problems uh, that you're hoping to invest in. Yeah, I mean, if if if, you, if we get compared to Ezra's fund, then I'm very happy because Ezra is an amazing investor and Starting Line is an amazing fund. Uh, I think we, if we're anywhere near the category of Ezra's fund at Long Jump, wow, are we doing an amazing job? But I think I think. You know, fundamentally, if you think about venture capital as an asset class, like where do you make your money? You make your money in non-consensus bets. That's like proven by the research time and time again. If if some if, if the market thinks this is a great idea, you're not going to make any money on it because it's going to be very well priced. And that's how we. That, that's the funny thing about building a business like Longa. We're our our first and foremost like belief is that we're doing this for the community. We're doing this for the founders who need to get their shot. But what's really funny is that perfectly aligns with the venture capital model, which is if these founders are being overlooked by the market conditions, if they're non-consensus bets, that's also a great fund. And so that's what's so interesting about this is that it's the perfect alignment of helping the doing good and doing well right at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. How do you assess 
when you hear of a problem that maybe you haven't heard before, but maybe you don't have the domain expertise in it, how do you go about figuring out if this is a problem, you know, an underrepresented problem or a problem that no one's really trying to solve? How do you yourself sort of diligence that? Is it all just about talking to the founder, leveraging your contacts and your network throughout, you know, the country, I'm sure at this point, how do you kind of go about that process of, of finding that criteria? Frankly, we spend a lot of time with the founders asking them how they think about that, right? So what have they done to prove that, they, like, in other words, like, have they talked to enough customers? Have they seen, can they bring research? Can they bring market? Can they bring proof? Can they bring some of these things to the table? And we rely on the founders to kind of prove the case, right? Especially when it's not obvious, right? And uh, in, in a lot of times you bump into things, you're like, this is obvious. And maybe, maybe it's not it's obvious to me, or it's obvious to one of the long jump partners because they know something. And I think that's the other, the key thing of how we've assembled the long jump team is we've, dis, we've assembled a diverse team of people with lots of different backgrounds, lots of different networks, lots of different things. And so I think our team is able to also, we're not just pattern matching using the same lens. We're all pattern matching using different lenses. And that's, that's helped us, I think, that helps us identify opportunities that maybe are different from everyone else. I also think, I also think founders, like we don't get caught too much in, we, we, we bias much more towards the people than we do towards like what they're specifically working on right now. Because at the pre-seed and idea stage, so much of what you're working on is gonna change. For example, I started Orchard. Same team, we were building a mobile app. Now we're building DraftBoat. Those are very different businesses, right? So like much, much more powerful to index. At the pre-seed idea stage, we think it's much more important to index on the founders and their aptitude and their skill set and their you know persistence and passion, those things, than it is to index on any one particular problem solution, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. I, I also think when you guys raised that recent uh, fund, um, you know, a few months ago, it it there was a ton of outpouring on Twitter and there was so much press surrounding it. And it felt like, you know, there, there was such a just um, excitement from basically the entire city at the news. And I'm, I'm curious about, you know, COVID, I saw some data throughout the time of COVID to suggest that funding sort of dried up for some, you know, particular sectors of, you know, um, founders, people who are from underrepresented group, first time founders, um, you know, probably more categorized as the underdogs, it really dried up at certain points and went to more of those sure bets went to, um, you know, um, serial founders and founders from, you know, the pedigrees that you would sort of, you know, check the box and say, Oh, okay. I'm curious if you if that was a trend you noticed as well. And if you think that, um, sort of laid the scene for why people were so excited to hear about something like long jump and the success thus far to date? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know that I have enough data to speak credibly on it. I think um, certainly we heard that from many LPs that were saying like, hey, I've kind of been looking for something like this because I've been seeing this problem for a while now. Um, I also think, you know, one of the things that we saw in Chicago was that, you know, many of the people that were the the five and 10 and 15 and 25 and $50,000 check writers in Chicago five or 10 years ago are now running their own funds. And so they've also kind of leveled up and that also created kind of a, a dearth of, of activity. And, and frankly, like there's never been more money in the venture capital world, in the, in, especially in angel investment, but that doesn't mean that it's more accessible than ever before, right? Like I think, I think there's very much a bifurcation of even at, even at the pre-seed stage, you know, there are deals that you could raise $2 million for in two weeks. And there's other deals, if they don't know the right people or don't get that first check or whatever, couldn't raise $100,000 in three years. And so it's it's not like it's it's not evenly distributed at all. And, 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 it's, and we talk to founders every day and they're like, you know, I, talk, I, I went and reached out, I talked to a bunch of venture funds and the venture funds told me like, this is a great thing. Go, go raise some angel capital. And they're like, I don't know any angels. How do I find angels? How do I meet people that want to write a $25,000 check? Like if you're not networked in, it's nearly impossible to do that. And, 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 and that's what's so crazy about this world is that it's like, it's, the system is kind of designed to do that. Like you need an introduction. Well, fuck, how do you get an introduction? Like, if you don't know anybody, right? And like, this is a really hard, like we, we create closed ecosystems to signal for quality and they work when, in those contexts, but they also 
they work to exclude people that can still be high quality without access to the network. And that's part of what Long Jump hopes to do is kind of break down some of those barriers. And you mentioned too, your LPs made comments about they were looking for something like this. I, I've heard of the Midwest Fund. It also launched around the same time as Long Jump. Um, it, do you think this model of sort of founder-led uh, venture capital. Do you think that'll be a mainstay in VC in the future? i just curious about your perspective on the future of venture capital and all the changes we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a big fans of the fund. Um, Jenny is one of the founders. Jenny Fielding is one of the founders and she's based in New York. And I got to know her while I was at Techstars. And frankly, the fund is an amazing organization. And we're so glad that they're here in the Midwest. And um, I think also at the same, that same week that Long Jump, we announced TechRise was announced and they're doing grants and uh, you know, like a number of other organizations were all launching in that same week, and it all felt like, oh my gosh, this is really great. Um, I would still say, like, I still think even with all those great positive things, like, I think we're still dramatically underfunded here, and I think founders um, are seeing that because because we meet found we meet other companies. Even, even if you're not looking to invest, like founders are more likely to take some of those serendipitous meetings or mentor a company at 1871 or like do something. And you just meet so many good founders and you're like, why, why is it so hard for them to put together $100,000? So even, and by the way, we're still like, we had so many good companies apply for long jump. Our process, just for our very first cohort, like we struggled so hard to cut these companies down. It was so hard, like perhaps harder than my time at Techstars when we used to see 2,000 companies apply to select 10. Like we only had 170 something companies apply this cycle, but like it was really hard to cut them down because there's so many good ones. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's, we just need more, you know, what is the application process like for long jump? You know, if I'm a founder in the Chicagoland area and I want to apply, you know, how can I do so? It's, it's so first of all, you just go to longjump.vc slash apply. Um, it's not dissimilar from like an accelerator application in many ways. I think that's where, you know, we have this application process and kind of this quarterly selection model. It's not because we're running an accelerator. We have no in, we have, we have no time to do that, even if we wanted to. Um, but it's it's really useful from a time management perspective. So again, going back to like, how do we do this in a part time way? We have to apply structure and process, just like we would at our own companies around you know customer acquisition or or whatever. Like we have to apply process here, and that's what we're doing. And so the application is pretty straightforward. It asks you a number of questions about your team and the market and the problem you're solving and where you're at as a business. But it like if you know what you're doing, it maybe takes you like. If you know enough about your business, it maybe takes 15 or 20 minutes to fill out. And frankly, if you don't know, if you get one of these questions and you don't know the answer, it's like hopefully really helpful for you to go try to think about that, even if long jump's not the right fit for you, because like we might ask a question that helps you think about something. But in general, it takes 10 or 15 minutes to do it. So it's not a huge burden. Um, and yeah, it's, and then we, at the end of every quarter, or we have, we have a quarterly process, but it, it, at the end of every application cycle, we take a look at those applications and we do interviews. Again, very similar to an accelerator, although at the end, there's no accelerator. We just write you a check and help you and do things like that, but there's no curriculum. So uh, I was curious about this from basically the second I started researching for this show. Um, You've spent time as an angel investor. You've now, you know, you've stood up this fund and you're actively investing in startups, um, you know, through Long Jump. Does your time and has your time as an investor helped inform your decision making and your sort of um, your strategizing as an operator? How does the sort of skill set you're learning or the way you're going through deals, meeting founders, how does that inform your ability to, you know, operate DraftBit? Yeah, it's a that's a really great question because that's the secret, uh, that's the secret hack of long jump, and it really is like something that I learned while I was just advising and angel investing other other startups, like after TechStars, while I was running, while I was getting started building Orchard and then DraftBit. Um, you know, and, and by the way, a lot of a lot of our inv like investors in DraftBit or investors in my partner's company, the other partners of long jump in their companies have asked them like, wait, why why are you spending time on long jump? You should be putting a hundred percent of your time into your company right and and that makes sense sort of from a objective outside perspective but but what's really interesting about um about advising other startups or helping other startups is you can kind of you find yourself in an advisory world where you're able to help solve problems kind of one step removed and i can't tell you how many times i'm talking to an entrepreneur and i'm like here's what here's what here's how i think about this problem or here's what i would do in this situation or whatever and i realize that like I should be taking my own advice. Like, 
I came up, I had a similar problem three weeks ago. Why didn't I think about it this way three weeks ago? Because sometimes you're, the problems are so close that it's really hard to take kind of an objective, like in problems in your business are so close, it's sometimes hard to take an objective stance. But when you're giving advice to some other founder, you, you can sometimes reflect and say, wow, all right, that was really good advice for me too. And so I do think what your question exactly is correct is that I think it makes me a better operator to spend five hours a week advising other founders because I realize things about myself or about my own business or about my team or my market or whatever it is that helped me be better at draft with. Yeah, I was, so, and I was, I was gonna ask too about um, long jump and how much time you do spend from a value add component, you know, post check. Or do you set aside meetings every single week with the portfolio of companies that you may have already invested in? Or how does that, or is it more asynchronous? You know, they can contact you anytime. How do you sort of go about that? you know, advisor role that you have effectively stepped into uh, through Long Jump? Yeah, well, we're still we're still in the process of writing our first checks for Long Jump. So I think a little bit we'll see. But but I do I have, you know, a number of other angel investments. So the way I think about this is like um, I, I, I mostly protect like my kind of nine to six time frame during the week uh, for draft bits. There's there's always there's always ex exceptions to that rule. But in general, I protect that time. And then outside of that time, I, you know, I let founders text me and we'll jump on a call or whatever, weekends, nights, whenever. That's how I think about it. And so I spend a lot of Sunday afternoons and things like that. Like I'll be playing with my son, we'll be at the park, but I'll be talking on the phone or I'll be helping someone send a message or whatever. I'll be doing kind of two things at once, which is, you know, sometimes, sometimes good and sometimes <laughs> good enough. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We've touched on Chicago a little bit throughout the episode, but I'm just curious to hear your overall overall takeaways. You've been around the ecosystem, um, you know, for for over a decade, or you have been associated with it in some form or capacity. Um, how do you think the startup community ecosystem here has grown overall in the last ten years? And and you know, where do you see the biggest sort of growth opportunities for it in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not it's not a question that I spend a lot of time thinking about, frankly, because I think so much of the like we've reached the point in Chicago where uh, the community is big enough now that there's like different facets of it. And those facets are kind of growing on their own and doing their own thing. And like so the world I really think about is not like I really think about how do we invite more people into the closed circle. Right. And so like. If if. Once you're once you kind of have broken in and you know Chicago, you kind of know the network and the network knows you. Chicago is like a super amazing supportive community of people that want to be helpful, even if they're not invested in your business. Like they will help you and they'll make progress. But if you're not in that circle, sometimes hard to break in. Sometimes hard to know where to go, who to talk to, how to get the help, how to get access. And I think I was lucky enough to kind of be invited in by Sam and Troy and a few other people like Ira Weiss from HPVP back in the day. And so I think of my role these days as like, how do I help do the same for more people who wanna come into the network? And I think it goes back to what I was saying before, which is like, I try to be open to new connections, even to the point of like, I take some meetings, like you said, serendipitously, where like, I don't know if it's gonna have a high ROI for me. I'm just like trying to be helpful to the person on the other end. And so I think that's my, my belief is that there is an enormous well of like untapped, entrepreneurial aptitude in in and around Chicago, but that it's, we, we, the culture of the Midwest has made it so hard for people to feel comfortable jumping out historically and starting something that like, that's where, that's where I spend my time thinking about is like, how can I invite more people just like one incremental more person into the start who just feels like, yeah, you know what, I can take this leap, go, go start a company and try it. If it doesn't work in nine months, like, I can go back and work somewhere else, right? Like just even that opportunity, a lot of people feel like if I go jump into a startup, I'm never gonna be able to go back. And that's just not, that doesn't make sense. But like, we don't, we don't, we're not actually rational people, right? Like we're all emotional people and we have fears. And so trying to help people understand that and spend time with entrepreneurs at that stage is where I find, I think most about and, and care most about. One topic that has come up on the show as well is, um, and you mentioned, you know, in the future, I'm sure you'll be raising a series A and a series B and all the rest of the series. But um, in Chicago, there is <laughs> <laughs> um, in Chicago, there is uh, almost a noticeable lack and kind of the broader Midwest in general, um, aside from drive capital, you know, those series B, those series C, those growth equity 
um, post-Series A funds. Uh, there, there seems to be a lack of those in the Midwest. And uh, I get different answers on this, you know, whenever I ask. So I love asking it. What's your opinion? Do you think it, it's necessary for an ecosystem to really, you know, continue to grow to have those later stage funds? Or do you think it's it's actually okay that you're going out from the Midwest and expanding your geography as your company scales to, to, to different funds around the country? Yeah. Uh, first, let me just preface by this isn't really a problem that I care that much about. Like, I feel like so many of the companies and so many of the founders that have gotten to the Series A level, like they are fully capable and have the resources and the people and the network and the support in the Chicago community to be able to figure it out. Right. And like, uh, so that part, I don't, I don't worry too much about that problem space. I will say like, I think as Chicago grows, I think some of the existing funds will grow into that space. So again, I don't think I worry too much about there being capital. Would, would I wish there was more Series A and Series B capital? Of course. But I also think the world is changing so much that like, um, like so much about later stage capital, which I'll describe as like Series B and beyond, which is not how many people would describe later stage capital. But like if you, later stage from a seed perspective is Series B and beyond. Like so much of that capital is metrics driven and and specialist driven. Like you really want someone who's deep in a particular area. You don't want a generalist fund. You want someone who knows your area and they know the right benchmarks and they know how to exit your company and they know like how to hire executives, like all those things. And so I think it becomes more specialist. At the earliest stages where I live, I think it has to be more, there's obviously specialist to play, but I think generalist because you're, 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 making, you're making bets on people more than you're making bets on this specific business and its traction. Right. And so I don't worry as much about not having capital at this state, at the B stage and beyond that's local, because I feel like so many times you want to go find a specialist anyways. And, and wishing that there were a thousand specialist funds in Chicago is sort of like, okay, yeah, I would sort of like that. But in my list of priorities, what would I like to have? That's not, that's not anywhere near the top 50. You know what I mean? And so like, I think more Series A firms and more Series Seed firms and more angel investors who are open to writing first checks, more people that didn't ask the question, who else is investing in this company? Those are the things that would really make a big difference in Chicago. And and all the Series A and Series B companies will kind of figure themselves out in my perspective. That's an amazing perspective. I love that answer. Um, I, I, I tell you, every time I ask this question, I always get a, I always get a great answer for some reason. It's, it's such a money question. <laughs> Brian, this has been incredible. I appreciate you so much coming on. I have to ask, as we close the show, I always ask uh, any Chicago restaurants or eateries that you want to give a shout out to uh, in, in this forum. Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a big fan of an Italian sub uh, by a little deli in the West Loop. Um, so you guys should check that one out. Um, the Mr. G sub, I'll let people Google Mr. G sub and go try that one. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a favorite for me, but that's obviously pretty well known. I don't know. Uh, I like I, one of the reasons I love Chicago so much is there's so much amazing food that picking one feels unfair. <laughs> well, that's a new one. No one's given us Mr. G. No one's given us an Italian sub spot. I've gotten a million. Mr. G, Mr. G is not the name of the restaurant. Oh. So I'm going to let people figure it out. The Mr. G sub is the thing you should order at it. I will let people Google it to find it, but it's in the West Loop. So, All right. I love that little discovery process from the audience. They're going to have to work for this one, exactly. not just getting a free reference. Brian, thank you so much exactly. for joining Chicago Capital. Can't wait to have you on again in the future. No problem. Thanks for having me, and it was a lot of fun. Take care. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.